Welcome to Outrage and Optimism. I'm Tom Rivett Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres, and I'm back. And I'm Paul Dickinson. <laughs> Welcome back, Christiana. This week, we discuss outrage at the state of global air pollution. We speak to writer and artist Oliver Jeffers, and we have music from Presidio. Thanks for being here. So guys, we have a lot of important and consequential issues to discuss this week. But listeners, I was having a quick update with Christiana just before we got on the air. And something tells me that this is going to be a Costa Rica heavy episode. So I don't know about you, Paul, but I sort of think we should just get it out of the way. What do you think? (laughs) Yes, now is the time. Now is the moment for the great little country that could to speak its name. (laughs) Christiana, welcome back. Not that could, that can, that can, Paul. You have to <laughs> conjugate the verb properly. It's not subjunctive. That could, that okay. can, and that did. That, yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. That, that, that must, that can, that will, that did. Yes, there exactly. you go. I got you, I got you, I got you. Yes, gotcha. all of those, all of those, all of those. Okay, guys, all kidding aside, I am sorry now, to Now, just tell before you. you relate this tale, do bear in mind it is extremely cold in Europe and North America at the moment, yes, so it's go like zero easy degrees on us. Here. Yeah. It's zero degrees here, and great... Dark yes, clouds. That's yeah. why that's exactly why you need a warm relief. A warm okay. relief, right? Because okay. I've just come back from 10 days on Isla del Coco, which just happens to be the most amazing island on the face of this planet. You know what it is like? It is like diving into the ocean like the ocean used to be 50 years ago. Wow. It is that quality of marine life because you dive in and you don't see a school of you know 20 or 30 fish you see a wall of fish thousands of the same fish school of fish thousands of them then you swim through that and you hit the next wall of thousands of fish of a different kind of fish and then you swim through that one and then lo and behold what is right in front of your nose a hammerhead shark or a white tip or, or a Galapagos shark, or several of them, or a giant, giant manta um, ray at the bottom of the ocean. I mean, guys, there is no description to the gorgeousness that we have on this planet. And we are so used to thinking of the beauty of nature above ground because that's where we live. But if we don our wetsuits, which are very difficult to get on and off (laughs) several times a day, and we go down into these gorgeous tropical waters with visibility 50 meters in front of you (gasps) and perfect sunlight penetration, and you see what marine life and what coral reefs there still look like and what they used to look like. Then you compare that to the conversation that we had just two weeks ago with Johan Rockström, where he told us Mm. that 85% of coral reefs will be gone. And, you know, your heart just sinks. And the big question is, so what do we do? What do we do to save at least those few incredible samples of what a coral reef used to be, but is still in Costa Rican waters. So I, I, I tell you, I've taken many gorgeous trips in my life. I've been incredibly blessed, but never have I taken a journey to the bottom of my heart in addition to the bottom of the ocean. Never have I taken such a powerful journey to the bottom of my heart. I have never felt as connected and as deeply moved by the abundance and the beauty and the diversity and the color and the just exuberance of nature. Mm. Wow. So what do we do, Christiana? What do we do to protect that? Whatever it takes. That's the answer. Whatever it takes. Well, that's why this trip was so fantastic, right? Because um, that little island that is 300 miles off the coast of Costa Rica, tiny little island, currently has a protected marine area of 2,000 square kilometers around it. But Costa Rica, you know, the little country that punches above its weight, our plan is to expand that from 2,000 to 130,000. 
And so how do we do that, right? We need the technology, we need the funding, we need the people to do it. Um, and so this whole trip was a brainstorming exercise with a whole crew. Well, the crew was amazing, but a whole group of amazing people, scientists, photographers, policy people, funders to get a plan together to... Um, expand that national park. So what a fantastic investment of 10 days. And, and here is the knuller, as you say in, in German. Here, here's the counterweight. As we came, it takes two days to get there. And as we came back into port, miles away from the port, we were out on deck and we started to smell the pollution of the port. And you know, having been out on the high seas with absolutely pristine environment, both water and air and land, and then coming back to port and just being hit by, um, by the air pollution and the, the smell pollution um, of land and of port was quite shocking, uh, which leads us to the amazing report that was released this week. Absolutely. And that's, I mean, what an amazing experience to come back from that pristine location and particularly going there, as you say, after having listened to Johan Rockström, have that stark warning from him and then come back to sort of, as you describe it, hitting that kind of wall of pollution. I mean, while you were away, in fact, just today, we're recording this podcast on Tuesday, this amazing report came out that just sends such a shockwave signal uh, to us and, and should also around the world. Now, this is a report that came out from Harvard University. Uh, there was a mixture of different partners that worked on it. But the headline statistic is that air pollution just from burning fossil fuels like coal and diesel and others are responsible for one in five deaths worldwide. Uh, that latest study, it builds on a huge body of evidence. There's been previous assessments of similar types, but it's been quite difficult to draw out uh, what is the impact from, uh, from fires and from other different sources. This is specifically from burning fossil fuels. Now that is 8.7 million people every year. The statistic is from 2018, which is shocking. I mean, it is, it is shocking by any manner, but particularly when you compare it to the fact that there have now been 2.3 million deaths from COVID, which of course is a heartbreaking statistic and it's not to minimize the suffering of those individuals. I mean, one is one too many and 2.3 is staggering, but 8.7 on an annual basis. And look at what we did to shut the world down because of this terrible disease of COVID. We know what the vaccinations are, for air pollution, right? They are solar panels and they are wind turbines and they're electric cars and they can be deployed at scale. So we really need to take this as a massive wake-up call. This is not only about the future, it's about what's happening to our lungs, it's about what's happening to our kids right now around the world and it is a moral outrage. And as listeners will remember, last week we had on the Deputy Mayor of London, Shirley Rodriguez, and she told the story that just last year, the first person ever to have air pollution as a cause of death on their death certificate was the young child Ella Kissy Deborah in London who died of an asthma attack a few years ago. And the coroner's report that just concluded actually pointed to the fact this was air pollution. Sadly, what this report shows us is she is very far from being alone. Okay, well, look, this is, this is shocking, um, really serious stuff. And, um, you know... <laughs> There's, there's, there's kind of goodies and baddies, I'm sorry to say. I don't know if you've ever seen those like pantomimes for children, you know, when they sort of say like there's the bad person. They go like behind you, you know, like the pantomime bad person. Well, I'm sorry to say uh, this week German energy group RWE last week said it was suing the Dutch government for $1.4 in damages over the Netherlands' decision to phase out coal by 2030. What? That is pantomime villainy and i'll tell you something else i've just seen all the kind of biggest and most famous kind of environmental campaigners in the world unite to put pressure on boris johnson the uk prime minister over opening a coal mine we're opening a new coal mine in the uk i mean what is going on when we've got these extraordinary tragedies going on and yet at the same time kind of all logic appears to be kind of up in the air it's like it's not yet a time of consequences i have a sense that we're kind of we you know we're kind of a we're a bit giddy and we can't quite get a clear view but when you hear about this massive issue of air pollution surely we've just got to stop coal now 
Yeah, and it's not just coal, right? And then we should point out the fact that that coal mine, the first deep coal mine in the UK, is now under question um, just today. That review has been picked up by the local council to assess it. Brilliant. But, um, but Cristiano, I'm curious to know what you think. I mean, this has been an issue. I mean, you, I, I've known you for a long time, and I know that you are very motivated by issues around the natural world, as you just described, your deep connection to the natural world. But I would say I've always thought of you principally as someone who's motivated by human beings and by human suffering. And I think that's been part of your power in this space. So how does this report hit you? Well, uh, Tom, as you said, one death is one too many. Um, but this statistic is just completely staggering. Um, and without minimizing that, with which I completely agree, my reaction to this report is, well, it's about time. It is about time that this kind of information comes out. And, you know, we those of us who've been in climate for, for, for many decades, since last century, um, have come to the conclusion that because climate is so large and, uh, and, and basically overwhelming for, um, for all of us, um, it, there's no way that we are going to make the decisions, take the decisions that we need to take sheerly on the basis of climate science despite the fact, right, that we have such clarity on climate science. For example, the death of 85% of coral reefs. But somehow, you know, those kind of statistics are, um, are paralyzing and they don't lead us to action. Mm. I, I really harbor the hope that this kind of information about our personal human lives, our children, our, you know, our parents, our um, sick people that we know, ourselves, that we are directly right now. This is not in the future. This is not, you know, some country way down across the planet, halfway around the planet. This is our. This is a direct threat to our health, and now we know to our life. Mm. And I hope that the directness and the immediacy of this threat is something that is going to wake us up. There are many people that are really trying to weave those two threads together, climate and um, and human health. Um, and, and it is about time that we do so because as long as we keep those separate, yeah. it's very, very difficult for most people to get, you know, to get to the decisions that we have to take. I mean, do you think the reason that it hasn't had uh, part of the question here, of course, is that the political potency of something like COVID that has just grabbed the world's attention and pivoted whole economies on a dime has basically been driven by the political necessity not to be seen to be allowing hospitals to be overcrowded and all these other things and pictures of people dying in corridors. You know, that's kind of what's motivating massive lockdowns. And the trouble with the air pollution is it just sort of happens slowly. It's a kind of silent killer that happens in the background that then, you know, affects kids' lungs and other things. It doesn't necessarily, but it, but it builds up slowly. So it sort of meets medical demand. And so it doesn't look like that. And it's a classic example of how risk that we become used to appears invisible. And yeah, risk but, but, but that, hold, yeah. hold on, Tom, because, you know, if last time I looked, every single human I met spent half the day every day becoming an amateur epidemiologist and you know you meet people <laughs> in the true. in the shop and they sort of go well the r rates you know up to sort of <laughs> 1.2 and you know broadly speaking like you look at like south african variant and, right. yeah. well exactly and so you know suddenly when the whole world's been on this massive education about virology because of covid-19 this is the moment when we're saying okay look you know guess what we got to meet a graph for the first time you know people have asked me before why did you get into climate change i'm like I can read a graph. So like this is a moment when the world is reading graphs. This is the moment maybe for this extraordinary study uh, to be, you know, for, for people to say, okay, let, let's actually talk about COVID and air pollution and, 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 and talk about, you know, deaths from human activity. That would be, you know, we, we infect each other with COVID and, and we give each other respiratory problems with our fossil fuels. And, and we need to kind of start integrating these discussions. Not like there was like COVID and then there's the rest of life. No, no, they're together. They're not separate. Yeah. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And, you know, I, I was going to say, Tom, when you were speaking, yes, you know, the problem is that COVID is acute and, um, and air pollution killing us um, is chronic. But the fact is that with COVID is now moving from acute to chronic. And if you don't believe me, yeah. you know, ask every UK citizen who can't leave the country now. And, and, and so that wall between what's chronic and what's acute is really disappearing. And we're beginning to understand that human health health, 
and the protection of human health is actually top priority and does take the first yeah. level of attention of policy above everything else, above, you know, everybody's desire to travel or to meet their parents or to go and hug the kids or whatever. Human health is taking the top priority. And that's a good thing. That is a very, very good thing. And all we need to do is just extend that paradigm, you know, understand paradigm shift that we've had in the past year to understand that as in COVID, so it is in climate, so it is in air pollution. Human health has to take the first priority of our attention and certainly of our commitment and action. Yeah. But, you know, one of the things I found most frustrating in the couple of decades I've worked on climate change is people suggest like really quite small things, you know, and then someone, you know, particularly a kind of economist on a business program will say, oh, but you're really not being realistic. You know, you're not being realistic that there would be this like fairly small change. It's really not realistic. And yet the entire, you know, basically world economy or certainly Europe, the EU has just been shut completely down. People locked up in their homes for a year, trillions of euro on furlough. I mean, like what's actually realistic and what's possible? Uh, we, we, we've just got a whole new, we switched the machine off and back on again. Now's the time. Yeah. Now, I mean, that's a lot of outrage. And so, um, you know, I hope you're still, you know, with us listeners on that. It's quite a, it's quite an intense topic, but it's one well worth delving into. And I'd really encourage you to read that report. There's a lot of detail in it. It's kind of shocking, but it really is galvanizing. It's amazing ammunition to really drive us towards further action. Now, we've got a great conversation with you this week, a really fun one with a good friend of mine, as you're going to hear, called Oliver Jeffers. Um, but just before we do, one of the other things that happened this week um, is I discovered, and I'm very late to the party, that if you use a particular app online, you can see all the reviews that we're getting for this podcast from every country around the world. I didn't even realize that there were actually separate systems for each country, which our producer has been laughing at me about. And, and some of them are really amazing. It's really wonderful to go through here. I have to say, we are so grateful to you, listeners, for going through providing feedback, letting us know what you're finding. I mean, one here from the US, uh, Jay Macedonia of our Apple podcast said, this podcast has kept me going through a tough year, both by acknowledging the need for outrage and driving towards an optimistic future. Thank you for your charisma, that must be to you, Paul, and humor, inspiring speakers and healthy balance of outrage and optimism. It's just great. Thank you so much. It feels so good to receive these. We are really so grateful. Nice. Yeah. Here's one from Pete uh, from uh, Great Britain who says, uh, particularly enjoyed the comment from Christiana, now at last we have a White House with all the lights on. <laughs> Thank you, Pete. Very true. Good point. Any more reviews would be so, so um, grateful. Tom, yes. okay, are you, are you about to pivot to our interview? Because if, if you are about to pivot, okay, well then, sorry, you can't pivot yet. Um, so I have a footnote <laughs> comment. Okay. Um, if you all thought that um, my 1.5 minute summary of the most amazing trip of my life was going to be all that I share, you are so dead wrong. So A new podcast uh, series. On board. Yeah. Yes. Visual. Well, no, not podcast. Visual. Okay. Visual <laughs> podcast series. Okay. Um, because on board, I'm not a particularly good photographer, but we had... Uh, the two top photographers and cinematographers of Costa Rica on board, wow. who uh, and their brother, brothers, uh, and one of them took two thousand photographs per day over ten days, and the other one took, I think, five hours of video per day over ten days. So um, we have a lot of material, and I thought that I would cut that material to maybe a maximum total of twelve hours of um, of visual material. <laughs> And, um, and share that. And I have been informed that we can actually do that because we're going to start. Great. Yeah. Fantastic. 11 yeah. and a half, Christiana. Don't overdo it. 11 and a half. Okay. On a live Zoom, is that? Yeah. So, um, okay. so who can explain to me what, how we're going to use this amazing material? None of you. None of you are paying any actually, attention. Okay. <laughs> No, 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 no. There's, okay. a, there's a great deal of intention, but there's a lack of competence. So like Tom and I are like, yeah, this is a really great Excellent. idea. And I think you really, I I think you really got us out of that one, Paul. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Luckily, Sharon and Clay may know what to do. Uh, Sharon definitely knows. 
Okay, Sharon, please insert here a description of what's going to happen next. What is going to happen next is our listeners will be treated to a array of video material. An array? Yes. Starting with Christiana's fabulous self-shot footage um, and excellent camera work in a series of documentary videos (laughs) that we will start releasing on our YouTube channel. So listen to the podcast, watch in social media, and we'll let you know when the series begins and you'll get to see a lot more of Paul's COVID hair, um, Tom's headphones, and Christiana's fantastic backdrops. Yeah, the undersea world okay. of outrage. Not Sharon Johnson, ladies and gentlemen, producer of the podcast. Um, Paul, can I please suggest, Sharon, that in amongst the amazing footage of the Isla del Coco, we occasionally drop in a small shot of Paul pretending to be a manta ray in his kitchen, and it can just go I in amongst all the that. manta ray it's, footage. It, so It's all about yeah. the movement. Yeah. You know, they're kind of very graceful... Uh, you have to. You have, we're on Zoom, listener. You won't be able to see myself sort of evoking this sort of magic carpet of you know infinite beauty. <laughs> the magic carpet. Of okay. Well, beauty. I'm very glad. I'm very glad that Sharon uh, saved you guys because that was my little quiz. You know, are you listening to what uh, our team is telling us? Well, clearly the two of you failed, but Sharon saved the day. And I am very excited because truly, uh, one photograph is worth more than a million words. Uh, and so I'm very excited that I'll be able to share some of the visuals of this amazing place. And for people all around the world, notice how excited a proud Costa Rican is at making a huge natural refuge. Honestly, if there's one amazing thing about Costa Rica, it's how everybody wants to turn the entire country into just a giant nature reserve. What a great idea. It is. All more countries should be like that, in my opinion. And one other way to use this is you can listen to this podcast, you can play a drinking game, you can do a shot every time Christiana mentions Costa Rica. It's a fantastic way to... Oh my gosh, everybody will be drunk very quickly. There you go. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Okay, moving on. Right, onward. Onward. We have the brilliant Oliver Jeffers with us this week, and you're going to love this. It's a fantastic interview. He's an amazing artist. Now, Oliver is a visual artist and an author, uh, working in painting, bookmaking, illustration, collage, performance, and sculpture. Uh, He's from Belfast in Northern Ireland, moved to New York City in 2010 recently moved home, partly as a result of the pandemic, and his critically acclaimed picture books have been translated into over 45 languages and sold over 12 million copies. I'm willing to bet if you are the parent of a young child, you probably read Oliver Jeffers' books to your children. They're absolutely brilliant. I have known them for many years um, as I've read them always to my kids, and um, it's been great fun getting to know him, as you're going to hear in this interview. His recent work has been focused on telling stories that help people to see the singularity of our Earth, shifting perspectives from I to we to realize humanity's shared destiny. And he believes the most significant problems of humanity need global, unified responses. This is our conversation that we had a couple of weeks ago with Oliver Jeffers. I hope you enjoy it and we'll be back to discuss it afterwards. Oliver Jeffers, what a pleasure to have you on the podcast. We have wanted to talk to you for such a long time. And I'd like to start before asking you a question by just telling... Wait, a, wait, wait, wait yeah. I have to interrupt you. <laughs> yes. Um, what did you say? We've been really looking forward to... Could you just repeat what you said? I just want to fact check here. We've been really looking forward to talking to you. <laughs> Is that the bit yes, you're fact checking? actually... Okay, yes, I'm going to fact-check that. <laughs> that you can't fact-check that. Because the truth is... Yeah, I mean, really, can you fact-check... Sorry, Christiana. <laughs> yes, yes, because the truth is, Oliver, that Paul and I have been incredibly jealous of you ah, and Tom yes, that's, that's behind right. our backs getting together mm. for, you know, evening wine parties. Um, and <laughs> Tom's so always talking it, about them and saying what fun he's having. And, yeah, <laughs> it's very unfair that you've been doing this uh, behind our backs. Well, so... 
fact check. Well, for that, I apologize. Well, Tom has not apologized. But, Christiana, you're going to have to start drinking at lunchtime as you're based in Costa Rica. So if you're prepared to do oh, that, dear. then we can have a conversation. <laughs> oh, dear. Now, actually, though, the story of those wine evenings, I'm going to tell that because this, I don't know if Oliver knows this, but you, are, Oliver, are a small but significant part of my reason for optimism in the world in 2021. So let me just Aww. explain that. I did not know this. Um, so some months ago, um, I did a TED Talk and like everything else in 2020, it was pre-recorded. So I recorded it in the woods and then sat down with my wife, Natasha, to watch the evening. And it was amazing. There was a whole series of TED Talks that came out. And I was a bit nervous because we were looking at all these amazing people that were doing TED Talks. And mine was kind of coming up in like half an hour or 40 minutes, or whatever it was. And then this talk comes on from Oliver Jeffers, and it is just beautiful. It's been well shot. It's been well lit. It has these amazing graphics. And Natasha, my wife, put her hand on mine and gives me this look, and she goes, it's okay. He's a real professional. Nobody expects you to do anything of that quality. <laughs> so, so that really you know improved, it's bad when you're getting that really kind of support. my sense of nervousness. But then my talk came on a bit later and right after it finished, my phone pinged and it was the TED Messenger app and it was a message from Oliver Jeffers. And he said, just watch your talk. Loved it. Would love to get together and have a chat. So I replied and my memory is that actually that evening um, we got together on Zoom with a glass of wine and we sort of sat up late when our kids were in bed and we talked philosophy. This is true. And uh, I suppose our reasoning was if... This was in Vancouver, as it was supposed to be. We would have met at the bar after exactly. the talks anyway. Mm. Exactly. Um, but despite that <laughs> fact, people don't really do that, right? And then since then, we've continued to do it. Like every month or six weeks, we'll sort of find an evening and we'll sit down, drink, mm-hmm. we'll drink wine and we'll have a chat. And here are my reasons why that has been a source of real optimism for me at the end of this strange year we've had. First, you have educated me about the transformative power of art to create change in the world. That's something I've thought about for a long time, but I've never really understood the full potential of it. And that has been a real eye-opening and remarkable experience for me, which I'm, for which I'm very grateful. And second, that's the first time I've ever made a friend on Zoom, right? I've never met you, Oliver. <laughs> But actually, no, I know. People... I'm not sure that that's a good thing. <laughs> no, well, I don't know whether you've it's made friends. It's a necessary thing. It's a necessary thing. It's a necessary thing for our world in the future. You can talk to people in any other part of the world. You can make a connection. You can find shared interest and things you discuss to improve the world. And you can do it from wherever you are. And that has to improve the world. Yeah, and well, I have, a, I have a confession for you as well, Tom. All right, that, go for it. Uh, you, well, you also are, were a source of optimism for me, um, because we we've been having a pretty weird year, and that was like the last of the um, watching the TED talk and and uh, closing my laptop afterwards was sort of the last in a series of events that had had wielded so much promise uh, and had not been delivered because of COVID, and and I did just uh, sort of get a, a bit of a funk of well. You know, there's another thing that didn't happen. And I felt this this pressure to work. And we had been traveling up to that point and we ended up being stuck in Northern Ireland, where I'm from, and partly because uh, my dad got a, a cancer diagnosis the same week as lockdown started and we want to oh, be yeah. here for him. And we were in a very small apartment, not where we normally live, with both our kids, couldn't go outside, couldn't work. Uh, and it was just really the the those couple of conversations with you were were one of the the things that sort of brought me back out of that funk and and uh, that's when a couple of weeks later I was having a just a real frustrating moment and and I had taken my kids right at that first time that people were allowed to leave to go and get some exercise um, I took the kids in the car just to give my wife some space uh, and it was just you know sort of being right well here's another chore that needs to be done and just thinking about the world in which they are living the world in which they're about to be handed and looking back at both their innocent faces and sort of an ad came on the radio that says um for those of you with young kids don't wish it away it'll be gone before you know it and it really just hit me and a combination of all those things and then i was able to take that sort of turn of energy and uh, tom and i were able to, to point it in, in some interesting directions of conversation so thank you for helping me with that sir amazing amazing i love that that's great um and so actually that segues really beautifully into something I wanted to ask you. And um, and we sort of have touched on this on our on our wine evenings, but maybe not quite in this detail. Um, I, I've read all of your books because I read them to my children. Um, and, you know, I, I know your work and, and your work as a fine artist as well. 
And I think if there's one thing that characterizes all of it, it's an amazing sense of perspective. And you just gave that example then with your kids as well. You know, step back, don't wish it away, you know, enjoy the time and enjoy when you're with them. And I get that from your books as well, you know, whether it's mm. sort of here we are on earth, let's step back and realize what it is. And and there's some lovely lines in them. I mean, The Fate of Fausto is one of my favorite books you wrote. And you say in there at one point, something happens to the main protagonist and you say, the sea was sad, but it went on being the sea. You know, there's this sort of beautiful sense of spaciousness in your writing and your perspective on things. And I'd just love to have you talk about that for a bit, because I think it's really powerful. And I think it's a, a big part of why people react so strongly to your books as they do. Well, yeah, there, I think you're absolutely right. And there is a lot of space in my books. Um, some sort of smart people have asked me, is it because I couldn't be bothered drawing all of the things in, you know, <laughs> the average five-year-old? And uh, it's like, well, no, if, if I leave if I leave space, then there's there's room for people to put themselves in the story. Yeah, yeah you uh, could add yourself, right? Get, them, you get can, your own pen. yes. And the, the, the location can be in geographically anywhere, really. And that allows people the ability to, to make the story more about themselves. And um, one of the favorite, one of everybody's favorite, characters in my books is the penguin and it's always struck struck me as odd because he doesn't really do anything um, or say anything but then it made sense because it's projection and everybody is playing the starring role in the film of their lives you know it's always the show is always about you whoever you are and yeah. that everything else bends to the how that affects you we you know we are inherently selfish people i think and um, whenever, um, quite by accident, not by design, these stories were sort of left vague enough that they could be left to be applied to to anybody else. I thought that that was um, that was an interesting thing. And somebody pointed out that uh, it's interesting that so many of my books are about kind of loneliness and, and empty space. When when I grew up in a in a house with three brothers. Um, and per perhaps it was just wishful thinking <laughs> that I had this this amount of space to myself. Um, but but I think the perspective thing really comes into it uh, too. You can probably tell from the way that I talk. Uh, again, the first line of my TED talk is that I, I have a uh, I'm from Belfast, and whenever somebody else pointed out to me that duality was a, a major theme in my work, and piecing that backwards over some some um, some time, I think I figured out that. Because I grew up in a very politically divided city uh, and not really wanting to take part in the the kind of the the, the aggressive spiral downwards of the, the the violent and revengeful politics here, it afforded me an ability to be able to see two perspectives at one time. Mm. Uh, and then particularly whenever I left Belfast, whatever, 15 years ago to live in New York, looking back at our political problems from the distance of an ocean, it, it put it really put perspective itself into perspective, uh, especially when I was researching for the book Here We Are and l reading about what uh, all these astronauts have said about the overview effect. I recognized the language was similar to the way in which I talked about Northern Ireland from several thousand miles away. <laughs> I, I, I've only been to Belfast once, but I, you know, many years ago, I went to see the one of the famous walls or the famous wall. And um, for those who listeners who are not familiar with it, what's funny is a wall that divides these two communities, but you can walk around either side of it. So it's a totally crazy wall, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. but, 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 you know, you, it, it was, you used it as a joke in, in, in one of your wonderful films. And I just, um, I just thought about, um, this collective human experience, you know, we, you know, your, your beautiful work, uh, expressing the world in terms of kind of people live here listed on every country, you know, we want everyone to, to come to that kind of realization and feeling what do you think's the road to it how do you find that in yourself well i do think that a big part of it is what i just touched on earlier on that that we are all sort of inherently selfish um and that I, th I think that's been a product that's come from this this great peace that has happened since world war ii really where uh life as humans have known it has really never been better for mm -hmm. most people on the planet uh it's it's been lavish lifestyle of of excess and um people haven't really been given the opportunity or encouraged even to think about what the knock-on effect or the consequences of that are uh and the the, the i think the the engine behind uh, a capitalistic growth model is whenever people want a better lives for themselves individually. But uh, the I think a, a major side effect from that that we're noticing is that people feel disconnected from everybody else. Yeah. Um, and that 
the story is just about you, not actually about everybody else. And I think one of the most important things that we can do, and Tom and I have discussed this, is somehow changing the story about me, the individual, to we, the collective, and reminding people that they are actually part of a community, whether that's even a local community or a global community. And uh, and a big way in which I do this is just through the very simple optics of pointing out the fragility of existence on this planet and just how alone we are in the universe, really. Um, so I, I I think it's it's about that. It's a it's a mind shift, a mindset shift from the little me to the big me. I've I've heard people in uh, some Asian cultures have this notion of a big me. I mean, it's, it's very popular in many cultures, mm. and, and and you're absolutely right. I'm sure we we kind of lost it with this quest for personal acquisition, and you know we kind of it's like a, a kind of an overindulgent society, which is a bit boring, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I th- I think so. Um, and you know, there's the I was reading a funny tweet yesterday and somebody just said um so what's like the point you know do i just drink coffee and do yoga until i die (laughs) i'm bored and i was like you're right you know that's because that's just it's about you um and and i've always thought that there's a joke is always funnier when you tell it to somebody else rather than just into yourself and dinner's always better with with friends or or with a partner um it's it's always more fun to, to watch a film with with friends and i don't know about you but most people that i know sort of experience more joy when they give somebody a gift that obviously makes a difference than receiving something that they have coveted and it's that that sense of connectivity that you matter to other people and that other people matter to you so oliver you have just given me the segue to come back uh, to your statement that uh, you assume that people are inherently selfish. But you've just contradicted yourself, my friend, because you have just given us very clear examples of how we're actually inherently generous because we're much yes. happier when we gift. We're much happier yes. when we're with other people. We're much happier when we share. Yes. So what what if we turn that original statement of yours completely around and say, actually, which is my stand personally, um, people are inherently generous. And yes, we have selfish, selfish acts. I, do you know what? I, I agree with you and I misspoke. I think I I think people are encouraged to be selfish. Yeah. 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 Aha. Okay. Okay. That, yeah. I think yeah. Our, our training, right, our training in the world um, moves us away from our... Uh, innate generosity you, you know um, you know 550 billion dollars a year spent globally on advertising all most of it telling you to be selfish so Christina. yeah the the other thing that i wanted to um i'm very curious to hear your reaction oliver is to um going back to the overview effect because mm-hmm. what i think is very um fascinating about that effect is that, yes, we understand that it's been entitled like that because it's the effect that the earth has on astronauts when they can have a view of the earth that is very far away and hence they can see the entire earth. But it's the distance that um, actually gives them that overview effect. Well, what if we think about that differently? What if we think about the fact that um, the effect of the distance is actually to cut the distance? What if we understand that if we have an overview of who we are as humans and what humanity is all about, which in my book is eminently generous, what if that overview actually allows us to touch our humanity, the humanity that we all have inside of ourselves. And it is only through distancing ourselves from whatever there is going on at that moment, through taking a certain detachment and a certain distance, that we can actually get back in to the true depth of who we are as humans. I would love to hear you talk about that interesting concept that what the distance is, it provides you to cut the distance and get back to the humanity in you. 
I agree with that completely. And I think it is, as you say, absolutely all about a perspective shift. Um, and I was sort of building up to that when when I was saying that, uh, you know, planet Earth is in a cold and lonely part of space. But if you flip the perspective, because there's literally nothing else out there, it means that planet Earth is actually the least lonely place in space. Um, and like, as Tom mentioned in, in his TED talk, that when a story is changed to include people in a in a kind of a you know, in a, in a generous and powerful way, that can become, that can become, uh, you know, a, a huge force. Like when when Tom mentioned about the British war effort in World War Two, going from people denying it to, uh, what was your line, Tom? Even the the act of planting a potato took on significant meaning for the cause. Full of meaning, yeah. yeah. And I think that's absolutely right. And and I think that's what's needed now, is yeah. uh, as as you say that for because there's um, a knock on effect as well from just the the, the global uh, capitalist growth movement in that it, because it's happening so fast and people are just thinking about themselves, more and more people are feeling isolated and left behind. And uh, Sebastian Younger said in his book, Tribe, that modernization seems to breed isolation. And maybe if this, and it can happen quite quickly, if this, if this shift in perspective happens, that suddenly the story makes sense from another filter, that maybe people, not only will we be able to, to uh, turn around uh, the green industry, but people will feel a sense of purpose and connectivity again. And here's just how quick that mindset shift can happen. Um, a couple of years ago, I made a piece of art and it was a map of the earth. Uh, and I painted it upside down from memory and then labeled it the right way up. And the point being that as as all those astronauts who have been out in space, when it takes them a couple of minutes to recognize where anything is on Earth, because they're like, oh, yeah, you know, Africa is sideways, for example, is there is no up and there is no down. Mm -hmm. So it's completely arbitrary that North is at the top of the map. So whenever you take this map and you turn it upside down, but it's labeled the right way, suddenly something that seems very, very familiar to you can become foreign in the blink of an eye. And that's, that is how quickly we can change and we can change how we look about it when when we let ourselves i love that and i love the what you just said there was the story makes sense from another filter you know we sometimes talk about a new story or needing to change the story of of, of humanity on earth and i think um you know your books and your work brings this amazing perspective but what it is is it's the same story of humanity and of our time on this planet mm -hmm. the only place we know unique in the universe as far as we know occupying life it's actually a new lens or a new filter on that existing story. And as you say, it can happen in an instant. I mean, you and I have talked about the role of art in this. I mean, you know, we three hosts of the podcast talk talk a lot and we talk about data and numbers and how do you communicate with people. But I've experienced um, from your work and elsewhere, you know, that something can sort of hit you like a lightning bolt and it changes your perspective because you're, you're shown it in a way that gets you head and heart and all the way through in in, mm -hmm. in art and and that feels we we need to sort of allow the transformative potential of art to really penetrate us at this moment because yeah it, i couldn't agree with that yeah more. and it can happen so quickly then it can and it's you know think about uh children learning to read uh, kids become human beings become uh, visually literate before they become uh, able to to read writing, mm. um, and and I think the 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 importance of art in schools is is so undermined, um, and it's uh, it should be encouraged so much more because it is so important. It is how we feel. Um, the the idea that science and art are separate is nonsense to me. Uh, they overlap more than they don't, uh, and I, I just do think that that's something that as well could be shifted in the immediate future, certainly in terms of, of uh, school curriculums, is that more of an importance placed on art and just learning how to feel and l learning to trust your own judgments and, and emotions. Yeah. Feels to me like science is the, is the kind of how, but art is the what. And, um, you know, and just, the why. And, and the, the why. why, thank you. Yeah. And the why. And that, that, that links to this. It came out just the, the other week. We talked to Ben Rhodes, a uh, uh, brilliant U.S. political analyst. And, and, uh, and he said that, you know, the, the, the USA needed a, a mission or a purpose. But, I mean, it kind of applies to every country. And I've, mm -hmm. I've certainly heard my elderly relatives or whatever um, talk about, yeah, the, the, the Second World War or something. And they talked about people being united in a sense of purpose and being mm -hmm. kind of very generous towards each other and supportive and collaborative. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if you were away 
away from the sort of horrors of the thing, it was some of the best times of their lives, actually. And yeah. I, I think we, we, we actually do have a crisis now. So we're so close to being able to kind of reclaim that spirit. You know, what's, 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 the, what's, the, what's the door? What's the key? Well, I, I wonder if the key is is uh, getting everybody on the same page because there's unfortunately a lot of misinformation out there um, and t- too many people benefiting from mm. chaos and uh, and from uh, from misinformation. Um, so how that is done is uh, frankly that's above my pay grade. Uh, but I I think you know like uh, Frank Sinatra always says just be so good they can't ignore you. I yeah. think it's up to people like us to just tell a better <laughs> story. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. Uh, well, Oliver, we should maybe we should open one of our wine evenings to Outrage and Optimism listeners. We'll let them know and then everybody can join us. And <laughs> I we'll think talk that's about, a yeah, terrific there idea. There you go. <laughs> yeah. So we are so grateful. Any, Paul, Christian, another that, question? Is that how you're overcoming our FOMO that, you know, we're... we're <laughs> Is, is that, <laughs> honestly, Paul and I thought that we would get some kind of privileged access before we open it to all the listeners, but apparently not. Apparently we're just going democratic. We'll, we'll let, you let, us be, let, let us be Christina. generous of spirit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, you, two, you two can join us five minutes before everybody else There does. you go. Exactly. In the green room. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> basically, basically to get the table set, right? Yeah. <laughs> Well, but actually, it's, it's a bit of uh, your story about also making friends over over Zoom. I mean, that will be a story that a lot of people do have. And, you know, it's it's my job to remind us all that there's a lot less emissions doing it that way than traveling to Vancouver. So although it would be lovely to be in the bar, we have to recognize that, um, you know, we've got this amazing we do have these amazing technologies and, and we can mm-hmm. have, um, you know, it. it I think that one of the things that the, the, the sort of video world or whatever, 2020 has, has taught us that we're awfully good at transactional meeting by technology, but we're very bad at non-transactional meeting by technology. And that's, that's very well area. put. Very yeah. well put, Paul. Yeah. But and I think yeah, that, I that goes back to, to why I told the story at the beginning, right? Because Oliver and I have not had transactional meetings necessarily. We just drink wine, talk about philosophy and talk about our kids, which I think has opened to me this sense of of how technology could be used, actually. And um, and that's really powerful. And have actually, you two alien. actually not met physically? <laughs> no. No, no, we have not. Oh, I love that. Yeah. yeah. I, I've I'm got not this even image convinced of, you're real, Tom. Sorry? <laughs> I'm not even convinced you're real. No, exactly. <laughs> but are there aliens in space in a flying saucer, perhaps, looking down and saying, actually, talking about philosophy and talking about your kids is the best transaction? I think those aliens are probably zooming by with their doors locked, planet Earth, right now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't go! Any sense. Yeah. <laughs> We're running out of fuel. I wouldn't stop here. Let's go on to the next one. <laughs> well, Oliver, how wonderful to have you with us. We are so grateful to you for joining us and joining our listeners and sharing some of these amazing perspectives. And we have to ask you a question that we ask everybody mm. um, at the end of these podcasts. This podcast is called Outrage and Optimism, and it's called that because we believe that both of those impulses are necessary to take us to the next phase of human evolution where we live well on and with this earth. And we would invite you to comment on how you are in that balance between outrage and optimism as you look at the world next year and assess our chances of dealing with these challenges we have ahead of us. Hmm. Um, I, uh, I, I have described myself for some years now as a grim optimist. Uh, so <laughs> May we invite you to evolve that to stubborn? Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. I, I like that, yes. Wait, do you know you know what that involves? You might not be so quick at the draw when uh, you say yes, Well, no, yes, I, think, yes, I, think, yes. um, I think I, I think I have an idea, but uh, I'm, I'm imagining that I want to be optimistic, but I'm, I'm aware of the wits uh, that are holding mm. that back. There you go. A well, so grim so optimism. Grim optimism. Mm. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> anyway, let me let me let me let you finish. <laughs> yeah. Well. Okay. So uh, let's see. The what 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 outrages me more than than most right now is the the a combination of the um, ignorance and apathy that. Uh, mm. seems to have blanketed humanity right now, you know. Yes. My dad always used to say, he's like, never argue against an uninformed opinion. And uh, <laughs> it, 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 it appears true, that there yeah. are just way too many of those currently. Um, but it, optimism, I think, goes back to what, what Christiana was saying at the start, is that uh, humanity is inherently kind and generous. And we all, I think, deep down want the same things, which is uh, to be loved a little bit and to be part of a loving world. Um 
I do think I am convinced that on the general whole, everybody is a good person. And there are a few noisy people that uh, I think unfairly tip the balances to make it seem more uh, disproportionately angry than it is. So I'm filled with hope that we can get together uh, and come at this from a united front. Awesome. I love that. I love that. What a great message. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you soon. Yes, absolutely. I look forward to meeting you, Christiana, and Paul later on. Aha. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> but I will see you over wine soon. No, you know no, 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 Guys, no. Maybe, maybe, maybe the three of us do one and we don't tell Tom. <laughs> That's working for me. That's that what is working for me. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Sure. okay. <laughs> Lovely to see you. Great. So how wonderful to have this chance to have this conversation with Oliver Jeffers. Christiana, why don't you give us a detailed analysis of what you thought? Mm, Yeah, what did you think of that interview, Christiana? Yes, well, um, from the bottom of the ocean as I was swimming with um, 12 Galapagos sharks, I actually did have an opinion about your conversation with him. I see, Christiana. And that would be whatever your opinion is. What did you think, Tom? Um, so, I mean, as you heard in this, I've, I've had great fun getting to know Oliver. He has a very different worldview to me. And, and, and as, as life goes on, we tend to get established in our little bubbles um, where we only tend to relate more and more with people who do similar work and who move in similar circles, mm. etc. And every now and then you get to know somebody who approaches the same issue from a different perspective. And I've really learned just a huge amount from hanging out with Oliver, from understanding how he sees the world in terms of this artistic perspective, how he understands how change happens. And what it's really helped me to understand both that interview and other conversations is that change can just happen in an instant, right? It's about this direct connection with with beauty, with art, with creativity. And I think um, it's really helped me to see how in the climate movement, we've really relied a lot, and I've known this anyway, on intellectual arguments and heady stuff, whereas actually it's about a human experience. And I think that's what good art tries to precipitate. I think that's what he does. Um, and I, I think he's brilliant at it. It was, uh, I, I saw his uh, installation on the High Line of, of the moon and the earth. I actually was just wandering by. I didn't go there deliberately, oh, really? but I saw it. You yeah. know, and you you know you see that planet with people live here on every single country, and it's you know it's the most powerful message in the world, and it's it's very very beautiful. But I'm also you know uh, touched it. You know, I really enjoyed talking to him. He's just the most lovely human. But I discovered actually that. Uh, uh, reading afterwards that his his mother suffered from a, a similar condition to my own he lost his mother young uh, me much later but he described the impact of of that loss as a superpower of sorts enabling him to see the heart of what's worth living for what's mm. worth fighting for and i actually think you know we I, I'm I'm constantly inspired by the sort of genius and and joy of life and the the like the amazing people and things in the world and it's that actually it's that joy and passion that is the superpower that can actually I think um, help you uh, not just change things yourself but communicate to other people it is a superpower just as Christiana was saying at the start that you know you're you're kind of you lit up the screen when you were talking about nature Christiana and that 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 our our celebration of our fantastic world is what I think gives us the superpower to save it. Well, you know, um, I, I agree with all of that. Um, and this is definitely an and, not a but statement. And how important it is to do all of that in a way that is digestible for children. Yeah. Um, without our, you know, overwhelming complications and data dumps and all of that, well, all of which is, is necessary. <laughs> But um, but but the power of the words and the imagery um, for children, so that they basically get it straight straight into their DNA, right? It mm. it doesn't even go through their their head; it just goes straight into their DNA. And what a difference that makes! What a difference it makes when children are the ones that are calling their parents and their grandparents to account because. It, they just have it in their DNA. For them, it's like, yeah, of course, that's the way we should be acting. Um, and so people like like Oliver who really foster that and um, and and 
are able to encourage that um, attitude in children or that commitment more than attitude, we should be so grateful, so grateful, because that's what it's going to take. It's accountability. It's accountability to ourselves. It's accountability up. But more than anything, it's accountability down to future generations. And we just always tend to forget that. Yeah. No, totally. And in fact, um, in one of the conversations I had with him, he described meeting um, a, an extremely well-known musician and explaining what he did, that he wrote these children's books. And the response uh, that I thought was very touching was he said, um, what a responsibility. Because you're right. I mean, how this stuff gets communicated to kids. I mean, I know it from my own experience. Um, I've always talked to my kids about climate change from when they were very small. And they did that very deliberately because I didn't want to have, a, have have to save up a moment of a big reveal later on where it's like, oh, there's this thing we've been keeping from you. Because I thought that could end up being more concerning for them. But at the same time, you want to explain these things and reveal them slowly in a manner that also shows that this is still a beautiful world and that there is the opportunity to live a great life and that, you know, it's not, not, not all is lost, that you have the opportunity to really do something meaningful and significant on this world, perhaps more than ever now. Mm. To the point where your Zoe has gone on strike to such an extent that she's homeschooled. <laughs> well, they're all homeschooled at the moment, but uh, yeah, she's always oh, running. Well, I suppose everyone's homeschooling everybody. Indeed, this is also a great moment for the young and old to come together around. What was it a friend of mine said to me? Um, the kids are going to kill me or I'm going to kill them. <laughs> <laughs> We're waiting for you to come down and see us and save us in Devonport now that you can't go to Costa Rica. Anytime the kids are looking your forward children, but to seeing Down Uncle with the Paul. sharks yeah. and the manta ray could be a safer place, you know. <laughs> You know, here's here's a little a little anecdote um, oh, about no. that that power of stories, power of stories. So I told you we had the best, absolutely top best photographers on board with all of their you know material that they brought home. One of them, as soon as he got home, he has two small daughters, and you know my expectation was he was going to pull out his camera and show his daughters all of his photographs. He didn't. He pulled out a children's story about hammerhead sharks. And then he sent us all the photograph of him, um, you know, having just read that story to his two um, beautiful little girls. And I thought, isn't that interesting, right? Because he's not overloading them with, you know, all the data that we produce on the boat and, you know, the scientifically correct visuals that we have, da, da, da. He pulled out a children's storybook. This is the best photographer in Costa Rica or one of the two. What, you know, how how interesting that he's sensitive to that and that he understands that the way to children is through storytelling. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Right, well, um, so this has been a fun episode. Uh, people who listen, uh, and this is a test, I understand it might just be Mike and Robin Carnell, but it should be everybody <laughs> who listen to the credits will know uh, from Clay's uh, explanation last week uh, about the, the Oliver and I get together and drink wine, talk philosophy. If you're interested in joining one of those evenings, shoot me a message on Twitter and I'll chat to Oliver about it. And if we get critical mass, maybe we'll open it up and we'll do something publicly and talk with all of you. Wait, so so everybody's in the club now, you're saying? Everyone's in the club. Everyone's in the club, even <laughs> my parents. Even, especially your Isn't parents. That a song especially. by 50 Cent? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is. It's a great song. So... Now we're going to hear, as we always do, some amazing music to see us out. And as before on last week, we will hear from the band first about this piece of music and what it means to them and how this is a song with a purpose. This week, we have Presidio with the amazing song Clock Out. So we'll pass to them and we will see you next week. Thanks for joining us. Bye. Bye. This song was birthed out of, you know, the collective chaotic experience that was 2020. You know, the song is definitely about being inundated with disastrous event after disastrous event after societal and systemic issue and just feeling so overwhelmed that you check out and you go numb and trying to fight that feeling of numbness and finding your humanity again within it. I think what makes me outraged and what makes my blood boil is understanding that this is completely an optional situation um, and that there are people who are, you know, up at the top calling the shots who could make serious 
societal changes um, and change the course of history and keep us from falling off the cliff. And they don't. What makes me feel optimistic is when I see people take these conversations that we're having right now and translate them into actions. Just in the name of the podcast itself, Outraged and Optimism, I think that pretty much encapsulates where we're all bouncing between. We're stuck in this sort of numb state trying to find that optimistic tunnel through it. So when you see a group like Extinction Rebellion shutting down a city so we can have this conversation and take action, or you see a group like Sunrise Movement you know, protest in Nancy Pelosi's office to try and get the Green New Deal on the floor. These, these are such important things that bring a societal lens on this issue and make it so we have to talk about it. We have to do something. And so action like that is what will change the course of, of this existential problem that we're facing. Another episode of Outrage and Optimism. I love having music on the podcast. Uh, You just heard Clock Out by Presidio, and it's an incredible tune. There is more Presidio waiting online for you right now. You can check the show notes, as always, to check out a link for their latest record, Telepathy. Um, I've started a little tradition where every week my one-year-old son and I will listen to the music for the week on the podcast together. And it has become part of our heavy rotation. This EP is so lush, you know, with the harmonies you just heard and that verbed out guitar just kind of carries you away to another place, which is meaningful right now because we're kind of stuck in our living room. And so it's just been a refreshing escape for us to listen to Unwind, our favorite track, and just chill. And you're probably saying, how does a one-year-old chill? He listens to Presidio. So so go check it out. Link is in the show notes. Thank you, Presidio. I really do love having music on the podcast. Okay, credits. Outrage and Optimism is a Global Optimism production. Our executive producer is Marina Mancilla-Germán, and our producer is Clay Carnell. That's me. 
Global Optimism is Sarah Law, Katie Bradford, Lara Richardson, Sophie McDonald, Freya Newman, Sarah Thomas, Sue Reed, Sharon Johnson, and John Ward. Thank you to our guest this week, Oliver Jeffers. Uh, go buy his books. Go watch his TED Talks. All of the links are in the show notes. In his shop and on his website, he's got books, art, uh, free videos of him reading his books. And I've got my eye on these temporary tattoos that he's designed. Uh, yeah, temporary tattoos. I'm serious. Go, click the link. You'll see. Oh, and one other thing you have to see is he did this painting series where he paints a full portrait of someone, frames it, you know, like you would see in a museum, then gathers like 25 people, and then in front of them, he dips the entire painting that he just spent hours and hours painting, frame and all, into a vat of enamel paint. <laughs> it intrigued me so much, and there's a video where you can watch him do this, and he explains a bit about why he did that and why he does it this way, and yeah, the show notes. Just go, it's all there. Check it out. Okay, back to business. So you heard earlier on the podcast, we read off some of our listener reviews live for the show. Uh, would you mind submitting yours for us to read? Leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts, and your review just might make it on the air in the weeks to come. So we look forward to reading those. Thanks. Okay, so you made it this far in the podcast, and you know, you might be my parents. Hi, Mom, Dad. Or you might not be. Either way, you get a treat. So next week, we are going to have on legendary science fiction writer Kim Stanley Robinson. He wrote a book called The Ministry for the Future, which takes place in the very distant year of 2025. But wait, why is a science fiction writer writing about a time only four years away? And how does it involve climate? And why did Obama name it one of his favorite books in 2020? Hit subscribe and join us next week. We'll see you then. <laughs>